This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and today I kind of want to talk about shops offering services outside of auto repair. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsor, Napa Auto Tech Training. Napa Auto Tech offers three-hour virtual technical classes that can be accessed from the comfort of your home. To find out what courses are available, go to NapaAutoTech.com and click on the Napa Auto Tech class calendar link. I guess the reason this is a subject is I've gotten quite a few private messages and emails from technicians, I guess all over the place, and not just texts. There's texts, there's manager stuff like that. Not that that's by itself all that important, but they've heard uh, either on this podcast or others where I've talked about my kind of background growing up a little bit on the farm, but I think primarily in my grandparents' implement dealer and how as time went on, they got away from the implement portion. So at one time I was maybe middle school age, my grandparents were selling Massey Ferguson and Speary New Holland equipment. And they were given an option shortly after Ford had bought New Holland that if they wanted to remain a dealer, they would have to make a significant investment into the system, which would essentially be like the catalogs, parts cataloging, networking amongst other dealerships, something that we take for granted now. It's just what they do. Back then, there were no computers in the dealer parts were looked up on a microfiche machine and that stuff's really not all that important to the discussion but they got away from the farm machinery and just their retirement age already are getting there the buildings paid off the lands paid off they really just went to kind of their sidelines which were forestry and garden so john's rude or john's red husqvarna still or steel depending on where you live and i guess to be completely honest with John Zerud or John Zerud, it's really pronounced Yenserud. Mainly chainsaws, brush cutters, trimmers, blowers. That's really what they focused on and dealt with and really what I spent a lot of my time late middle school, early high school dealing with. The farm equipment stuff had really dwindled off. We're no longer franchise dealers. So the question is, as an auto repair shop, would it make sense to offer small engine repair? And it's difficult for me to speak about, I mean, honestly, I guess four stroke, but such sidelines to me, the first question is you have to consider opportunity cost. What do you potentially lose by having these other things to do, whatever that may be? And so right now I'm speaking almost specifically of you decide you're going to presumably sell We'll just stick with chainsaws and trimmers or lawnmowers. And if not, you're going to service them. Well, let's just talk about the sales, at least from my experience, which is now dated. There was very, very little money in sales. If you wanted to be one of those putting a high priority on the service, not just like fixing stuff and standing behind it, but you wanted to be able to talk with clients, help them pick out the right product, spend time with them, you were losing a massive amount of money doing that. Now there's no margins and your best hope was for professionals to roll in because they knew exactly what they wanted. They probably just call you and tell you to set one aside. You had no time selling anything or explaining anything. 
there just was no margin on the consumer level products and on the pro stuff. Not that it was so great, but there was some and you weren't going to spend time with them anyways. They didn't have the time to spend with you. They were going to stop by, grab their stuff and be gone. So just sales aside, service wise, this example, you're working on a chainsaw that doesn't start. If your shop labor rate is pick a number, $120 an hour, and you're working on small displacement consumer model steel, you spend much more than an hour on it, they could have just bought a new saw so that it gets rough right off the bat. And if you're going to drop your rate, now if you have a technician who could be doing work in the shop at $120 an hour versus working on this chainsaw for, let's just say for a number, $80 an hour, that's a loss. You're losing $40 per hour in opportunity cost. It just doesn't make it reasonable. There's repair facilities or dealers, small engine shops that just focus on small engines and the struggle's real for them. They can hardly afford to service these things. The only way it works is they have a really great lease or mortgage or they've paid it off that they can afford that. The overhead is low enough. Their cost of doing business is low enough that they could afford to do that. And that would be great and all. But for a lot of us, you just can't swing it. Riverside Automotive does not. Anyone that's ever dropped off lawnmower, I could probably count on one hand how often that's happened. I'm talking like smaller lawn and or garden tractors, probably on one hand, they pay the regular rate. They have to be willing to pay the regular rate. If we're working on this versus a car, we're not taking a loss on it. And within, I would say the last three years, there hasn't been times where we could tell somebody if you can just leave it. And if we have a really, really slow day that we'll go look at it, we don't have that opportunity. We can't do that. We don't have days like that. Even if they start out looking like That day, the phone rings a few times. We can't do it. So for this to happen, I think you have to be in a very special situation. You have to have that really low cost of doing business or you're just in a region where you're really the only repair shop of anything within a certain radius. Then maybe you can do it. And it's more helpful to do it. It makes more sense because you are the one-stop shop and you're not just working on cars and trucks you're working on everything. I guess I can see that happening. Kind of that really small town type thing. Like mathematically, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense more. Man, I hate to throw out the word ethic. I don't know if that's the right word ethically, but it just seems more reasonable to provide that in a very small town while maybe looking for one of your people or somebody else to open up something to take certain things off your hands, like maybe the small engine stuff that they start their own thing, even to the point where you're helping them start up their own thing. So now you can just focus on vehicles. Where I live, the population is under a thousand. The shop I work at is about 20,000 population, but I live for a little less than 20 minutes away. The town I live in populations under a thousand. There is one repair shop. They do not do any small engine work. Any of that would probably end up at a farm implement dealer here. And I bet a lot of it doesn't get touched until winter because there's probably no way they're going to be working on anything small during planting season or harvest. The machinery is going to, you know, the far agriculture stuff, if we will, machinery and equipment is going to take the priority. 
For 98 years, the Napa name has meant quality parts and service. It also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business. No doubt, the technician shortage is impacting everyone, but you're not facing this battle alone. Napa has the solution by making Napa AutoTech training available near you. Napa AutoTech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind, Napa AutoTech training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa AutoTech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Napa AutoTech is here to provide you with the training you need and the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Napa AutoTech offers, contact NapaAutoTech.com. It all comes down to the numbers and opportunity cost. That's a word that doesn't get used enough amongst a large number of our management. I see it once in a while. I mean, I'll level with the other person. I see it used the mo- that uses the most in many of the groups, management owner type groups I'm in is Dutch Silverstein. He will use that word a lot, but I don't see it shared a lot. I don't, it's not something commonly discussed and I worry not commonly understood. It's It should be so fundamental to day-to-day. It, I don't mean it shouldn't weigh on people like to a taxing degree unless you're abusing it. Meaning, are you that shop owner that's got one, two, three vehicles in the shop, in the parking lot, assuming a constricted parking lot? You know, if you're on a shop that's got freaking 10 acres and you got six cars, okay, big deal, right? Unless they're taking up customer parking spots. No, that doesn't make sense. That's, so these are opportunity costs. You have a car taking up a hoist and you have three hoists and two techs. That is a major, major speed bump in everything. Productivity. It destroys it. And I empathize, I think, with why that seems to make sense because it's your shop. You're the one paying the bills. You bought the hoist. I guess I empathize. I just don't sympathize and I don't agree that if you start calculating that out, what you're paying for the storage of that vehicle is ridiculous. You better not complain about your checkbook or the shop not producing because what you're paying in storage, you could probably rent multiple, multiple storage units. Again, you can't spot out numbers because we're talking about individual shops with individual costs and systems of production and stuff like that. So unfortunately, we have to speak somewhat vaguely about these things and it has to be about the concept. But I think if everyone kind of considers the concept, then it makes a lot of sense. And it won't always have to be the boss's car, right? There's a lot of shops 
that I've been in where one of the employee's vehicles is sitting on a hoist and has been there for weeks. And whatever it is, management trying to be nice, and I get it. Nowadays, people are kind of walking on eggshells in certain situations, but the opportunity cost has to be understood and considered by everyone under that roof. And really, as a profession, that should be something we talk about. What is the opportunity cost? What is the opportunity loss, that loss of income because of not just vehicles plugging up bays, but flaws to the system? Now we're back to the episode on common cause and special cause and processes that what is the opportunity cost or loss with these flaws? And are we going to ignore them? And so... The outside looking in, it's easy for us to talk on a podcast or sit and listen to a podcast and go, yeah, of course you would eliminate or as best you can repair the flaws and yet the, the flaws remain. When hearing that, knowing about that, you know, knowing that there's opportunity loss and knowing that there's flaws in the system, knowing that there's these hurdles, self-imposed, mind you. Vehicles owned by the shop, owned by the shop owner, owned by an employee, taking up spots in the shop, outside of the shop. Is there dissonance when we go back to work and think about that and see that? And dissonance, I guess a psychological term, where I guess hypocrisy is somewhat related to it. Although hypocrisy is a little more, I think, licensed. People give themselves license when they're hypocrites, where dissonance is... Basically, I would say an uncomfortable feeling of acknowledgement. Maybe an example would be that you love animals, you love all animals, care about them, and you're eating a hamburger. That feeling of contradicting yourself a little bit is called dissonance. So uh, when you're sitting in your 20 group or sitting in the lobby at a trade show or listening to a podcast like this or reading a forum post or discussion, and they're talking about opportunity loss or finding flaws in systems and agreeing with it out loud or in your head and then getting back to work, seeing that flaw and not doing anything about it. If there's kind of some discomfort and there probably should be some discomfort, that would be a dissonance. And when does that reach the point of action? When do you get sick of it and just decide like, okay, enough is enough. I got to we have to do something about this. I have to have a conversation with an employee. I have to have, you know, I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to have to do with this vehicle. I haven't made any headway on it for two years. Maybe it's not sitting on a hoist. Maybe it's pushed up into the corner that could have a hoist or be better laid out for production. Kind of a crazy journey to go from chainsaws to dissonance, but I guess that's what I do. I don't know if that's a good thing, but yeah, it doesn't matter what sideline we're talking about to kind of get back on the beginning of the subject. If it's small engines, if it's larger, you're getting into even agricultural stuff or machinery, really anything. I don't know that we even have to start putting names on there. If you want to start fixing stereo equipment, you have to consider what is the gain versus what is the opportunity loss? What can we make as much money working on this as we do you know what we do i would say normally right most shops were normally servicing maintaining repairing vehicles diagnosing analyzing it can be relate that right to like just within auto repair accessories trailer hitch installations 
audio system installations, classic car repair. I think that's been a common thread lately is can you afford to be working on classic cars? Well, yeah, you probably should. What do you have to do to the system to allow yourself to make money at it and not just make money as much as you normally would? All right. So a lot of shops have a different rate for classic cars or cars that are over 20 years old. They have a higher labor rate. The labor rate might be in the realm of like the diagnostic rate because the cost isn't always just working on the car. Like we're in the Rust Belt, Minnesota, we salt the roads. Most of the classic cars we work on, like the vast majority of them, they're not that rusty. That's not where we run into problems. A lot of times it's not problems in the shop, so to speak, with taking it apart, putting it back together, or figuring out what is wrong. The problem is at the front counter or really behind the scenes, trying to find parts. I guess our shop does not have a labor line for the service advisors or anyone for that matter. Technicians, service advisors, the owner, pouring over parts catalogs, the internet, trying to find parts for these things. So that's why the rate goes up. And we try to watch it kind of on a per hour basis, if you will. If that car was in here, that Chevelle was in the shop for two days and we worked on it for X amount of hours, did what we bill out mirror or mimic what we would bill out for a different vehicle, newer. It doesn't necessarily need to have the similar issues, just that about the same time frames. And if it doesn't, we adjust. And we've done a lot of adjusting on it. So we do work on classic cars because nobody else wants to work on them. Part of it's carburation. The, any of the shops that have lost their veterans to retirement, they don't have anyone there familiar with carburetors or points, uh, ignition systems. So some of you guys listening to this are probably going to have to rev up Google and look up what a carburetor is and what a points ignition is, stuff like that. And we do it. But we're going to make money at it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I'll level with you. I can think of one person that rejected it. And it was a car we probably didn't want to work on anyways. So it's gone over really well. They're so happy to have somebody that wants to work on their vehicles, uh, seems to care about them and their vehicles. And it kind of falls in line with the, at least what I perceive to be people with boats or when they go to buy a new gun or a new TV or whatever, something they want. It's their baby. It's a toy. The price of service and repair and to a degree, I guess, restoration doesn't carry the same, maybe not weight. It just doesn't seem to affect them the same way it is with their daily driver. So I guess in a very, very roundabout way, long-winded, any of these services you wish to provide, whether extended inside of auto repair or outside of auto repair, I'm definitely not going to tell you not to do something, but what you need to consider is opportunity cost or think maybe more, think along the lines of opportunity loss. What's the loss of income if I'm going to provide this service? And that goes for everything. You can start breaking it down to just what you do do every day. And are we losing money doing these oil changes? I'm not saying you eliminate them. I'm not saying you run the price way up, but it's an interesting exercise to consider. Okay. So with all that, I leave you. I very, very much appreciate you listening. I really appreciate the feedback you've been sending over the last few episodes. The 
ideas for new episodes and look forward to more. Please keep them coming. You can message me on social media. I'm pretty easy to find. And then thank you again for listening. And thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network for making this all possible and editing these things so they actually sound somewhat smooth and coherent. And then thank you for our sponsor, Napa Auto Tech Training, for really making this all possible. Until next time, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.